All right, let's open our Bibles this morning or navigate on your device to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We are pursuing a study through the Gospel of John, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 1, verse 19, and we're going to look down into verse 28 this morning. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. The topic, John the Baptist tells a delegation from Jerusalem, he is not worthy to loose Jesus' sandal strap. The title of our message, Born to Loose, But I'm Not Loosing You. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for our study this morning. As always, Lord, we want you to speak directly to us from the text by the still small voice of your spirit that indwells us. I hope that we learned something, Lord, this morning that we didn't know before. That's always fun and exciting, but more so that we draw close to you, uh, that we uh, understand more of your grace and mercy in our lives. Uh, Lord, that we could go out of this place knowing that we have seen Jesus reflected in the word, in the words that are spoken, and in one another's lives as believers in Jesus Christ. As Gino prayed, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, uh, we know that it's the ministry of your spirit, Lord, to draw them to Christ, and we pray that you would do that. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Preachers in Sneakers, an Instagram account that posts screenshots of megachurch pastors next to price tags and the street value of shoes they're wearing in the pulpit. Besides $1,000 classic Jordans and $3,200 Air Yeezy 2 Pure Platinums, the account started revealing other expensive items, a $2,000 Louis Vuitton laptop case, a $2,500 Ricci crocodile belt, and a $2,000 Gucci backpack. Reactions to the site are predictably polarized. One person commented, everyone spends money in ways others think are an absurd waste. Just because nobody is scrutinizing your finances doesn't mean you wouldn't or don't fall into similar indulgences, so lighten up. Another person wrote, pass the collection plate, daddy needs a new pair of shoes. I'm fortunate that no one has the account preachers in coffee. Uh, we'll just skip over that right now. If John the Baptist had an Instagram account, it would have been called preachers in sandals. He says in verse 27, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. I'll organize my comments around two questions suggested by the text. Number one, are you a voicer? And number two, are you a looser? Let's take a look at our voices in verses 19 through 23. I don't watch the voice, but I understand that the judges don't see the contestants, not at first. They hear the voice and then they make their decision. John the Baptist will reduce himself to nothing more than a voice crying in the wilderness, verse 23. He wanted to be heard and not seen. And so we pick it up in verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The Apostle John, the author of the gospel, will mention Jews some 70 times, and most often he uses it to identify those in authority. The priests and Levites knew who John was. It's not going too far to suggest that John had been watched and scrutinized most of his life. There are 400 years between the end of 
what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, and the ministry of John the Baptist. Scholars refer to it as the intertestamental period. Those of us in the pews call it the 400 silent years because it was a span where no new prophets were raised and God revealed nothing new to his people. As far as we know, nothing of supernatural significance occurred in the temple. The priests came, performed their duties, finished their rotation, and went home. One day in the first century, a priest named Zacharias was performing a once-in-a-lifetime service when he entered alone into the holiest part of the temple to offer incense for the nation. The angel Gabriel appeared to him to announce the miraculous birth of a son to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. They were to name him John. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and have an Elijah-like ministry getting the Jews ready for the Messiah. When Zacharias emerged, he was mute and not able to speak because he did not believe Gabriel's words. This was all big news in Jerusalem and throughout uh, the dispersion. His tongue was loosed nine months later at the naming of his son. The Jews could not have forgotten. If anything, as John grew, so did their anticipation. At the heart of the Old Testament is the expectation that God would send a unique king associated with King David's dynasty to establish the kingdom of God on earth and to rule it from Jerusalem. The nation of Israel was expecting one or more important Old Testament heroes to arrive. The temple delegation wanted to know if John thought he was one of them. And so they had watched John, I'm saying, and now that he is ministering in the wilderness, baptizing, they want to know if maybe he is one of the individuals they're waiting for. And so verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. The Bible Knowledge Commentary explains, in Hebrew, Messiah means anointed one, which in Greek is translated Christ. The idea of the anointed one comes from the Old Testament practice of anointing priests and kings with oil. Hopes were high among first century Jews for the arrival of the Messiah. A source I found explained that there were three beliefs on how Israel was going to get freed from Roman occupation. One was to take aggressive action against Rome, and there were groups who were doing that, such as the Zealots, attacking Rome directly, kind of a, a terrorist group within uh, Israel to overthrow the Roman government. The second method was to use passive resistance, sort of a pre-Gandhi idea, just resist even to the point of death. And then the third was the coming of the promised Messiah. Those with messianic hope believed that God or his representative would intervene in history on behalf of his people. One researcher writes, this view is presented in Qumran in the Psalms of Solomon 17. Psalms of Solomon 17 looks forward to the Davidic Messiah who will march on Jerusalem, banish the Gentiles from the city, reassemble the tribes of Israel, and establish the ideal kingdom. You know, you've heard probably all of your life in church that the Jews were expecting a deliverer, a Messiah who would overthrow Rome uh, in a kind of uh, army-type situation, and that's true. 
there were many writings that pointed to that, and, and that was, I don't know if it was the prevalent view among the three, but uh, there were many Jews waiting for the appearance of the Messiah. And they asked him, saying, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. The delegation knew their Bible. In the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi predicted that the prophet Elijah would return before the Messiah's coming. Malachi 4, 5 reads like this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. If John was not the Messiah, maybe he was Elijah. John denied being Elijah. Verse 21 goes on and says, Are you the prophet? And he said, No. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your midst, from your brethren. Later in John 6, 14, we read that when the people saw the sign that he had done, Jesus, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And so there was this individual called the prophet uh, who would, was promised to come to Israel. Now, a prophet like Moses would be a mere man, not the son of God. He would be a deliverer from their Roman captivity, but not from sin and death. <clears throat> you have to understand uh, the Jews in captivity had a different mindset than we do looking back. Uh, they, they wanted a political deliverance, not a spiritual one. In fact, many didn't think they needed spiritual deliverance. It's like the episode where Jesus is teaching in, in the house and they let down the paralytic from the ceiling. And instead of saying to him, you're healed, Jesus said, well, your sins are forgiven. And you think, wow, that's fantastic. But at the time you might think, and, and what does that do for me? Uh, how about you heal me? And Jesus, after the grumbling and complaining of some of the religious leaders says, oh, okay, so, so that you'll know that I have power to forgive sins on the earth, rise up and take your bed. And he did. And so the Jews, you know, we look back and we think, well, you need the spiritual deliverance. You need the savior. But the pressure of Rome, what they wanted to do is just be set free from Rome. And so whoever they were expecting, they were not expecting it to be God in human flesh. Uh, and so this prophet, like Moses, uh, again, would be a deliverer. Let's briefly reconsider John and Elijah. Jesus said of John, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Further in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, but they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And so Jesus told his disciples that Elijah is coming in the future, but that Elijah had already come in the past. John the Baptist would have fulfilled Malachi's prophecy had Israel responded to his message. He would have been Elijah. Two important things are at work in the Elijah prophecy, man's free will and God's providence. All of the parties involved had genuine free will. There's no 
sense of coercion. John the Baptist had free will to obey God or not. And so John, you know, he's born with this miraculous birth, but then as he gets older, his folks reveal to him, hey, you're a Nazarite. Uh, you know, you didn't take the vow, but God took it for you. And for the rest of your life, you're not to cut your hair, can't drink anything from grapes or eat raisins or drink wine and stay away from dead things. They'll defile you. And, and then you're going to have this whacked out ministry where you wear, you look like Elijah and go out into the wilderness and munch on locusts dipped in wild honey. And uh, you're going to have this message of repentance. And, you know, I don't know, you get the idea. Well, think about Samson, who was one of the great deliverers uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, yeah, I'm not comparing him with John in, in a total sense, but he, too, was raised up by God to deliver Israel at the time, and he was a bonehead. Uh, he disobeyed God all the time. And so it was a choice that John the Baptist had at some point. Israel's leaders were given a choice to receive or to reject Jesus. The Lord once lamented for them that he would have gathered them and protected them, but they refused. And so they had a real choice to make. If things had gone differently, God would have provided for it. We can only speculate how it would have all shaken out, but it would have. Jesus would have been crucified and the prophecies of the last days thus far recorded in the Bible would have been fulfilled to the letter. John told them he was not Elijah because he wasn't Elijah, not Elijah in the flesh, only in the spirit of Elijah. And so Jesus said, John would have fulfilled the prophecy as coming in the spirit of Elijah. But now Elijah is still coming because they rejected John. And so in verse 22, then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And so they had run out of possible deliverers. If he wasn't the Messiah, maybe he was, uh, you know, uh, this prophet, or maybe he was Elijah. And John said, yeah, I am none of those guys. And yet God was obviously blessing John's ministry. And, and it was a different kind of ministry than they'd ever seen before. And so John says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. One commentator writes, the imagery was that before a king would visit, a messenger would go before him to announce his coming. The townspeople would hurry out to clear away the obstacles and fill in the washed out parts of the road to smooth the way for the king's coming. The messenger didn't call attention to himself, but to the coming king. And so that's how John saw himself, just the voice crying in the wilderness so that the people would prepare themselves for the coming of the one after him. John's Elijah-like ministry was unique. We are not expected to wear camel hair or eat locusts or be under lifelong Nazarite restrictions. And so we want to be careful drawing parallels between John and ourselves. There are nevertheless encouraging parallels between John and ourselves that I think are biblical. John had a miraculous birth. Uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias were way past childbearing age. And those of us in Christ, we have had a miraculous second birth. We'll get to it in a couple of chapters where Jesus says, unless you are born again, born of the spirit, you are not a child of God. And so we uh, 
who are Christians have had a miraculous birth and uh, the Spirit of God indwells us. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. A Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling them from the time they are born again forward. John conducted his ministry in the wilderness. The world we are in can most definitely be described as a dangerous spiritual wilderness. Jesus has left us in it to make a difference with the folks that don't know any better. John's message and our message are essentially the same. Men are sinners and Jesus is their savior. Repent and be saved. And so we are many voicers crying out with compassion that Jesus came and is coming. We point to the Lord, hopefully, as later on it says of John, decreasing so that he may increase. Number two, are you a looser? Well, there are no surviving artifacts or descriptions of Jewish shoes from the period of the early Bible. We do know that Jews were taught the craft of sandal making while they were slaves in Egypt. The biblical sandal was either leather or wooden footboards held to the foot with leather thongs. Sandals were prominent in the Exodus. On the night of the first Passover, we read, this is how you are to eat it. With your loins girt, sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, you shall eat like those who are in flight. It is the Passover of the Lord. And then twice in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord reminded his people that in 40 years of wandering, their sandals did not wear out. Do you ever have a piece of clothing that you almost hope would wear out? It survived several cycles of fashion, but I've had stuff like that. It just, it just won't go. We have, some of you have those uh, established, Calvary Hanford established 1985 t-shirts. Those things are like 100 years old. You can wash them, stomp on them. You know, I, I've got four of them and, and they, they're like they were brand new. I, they're the greatest t-shirts ever made. Uh, but this, of course, was supernatural in terms of the sandals. One uh, uh, insight, or, or I don't know if you call it an insight, but one comment about the Passover. Christians are always trying to be authentic about things. And so there's, uh, come Easter time, there's always, hey, we want to have a Passover Seder, uh, where we do what the Jews did when they, when they celebrated the Passover. And if you've ever gone to one, uh, they're, they're cool. There's nothing you know, wrong with them, but they're never anything like what you read about in scripture. And so I would tell you that if you're going to celebrate the Passover, you need to have your loins girt, sandals on your feet and a staff in your hand as if you're getting ready to fly out of that place. Not whatever they're doing. You know, now today they have one guy dressed up like the high priest and he's got all this symbolic stuff and that is not from the first century. It's from many centuries later. Uh, and so I also joke with people, but I'm kind of serious about communion or the Lord's Supper. People say, how come we only have the Lord's Supper on Wednesday night and not on Sunday morning? And I say, because it's the Lord's Supper. It's not breakfast. It's not a brunch. And people say, oh, that doesn't matter. Only what you think matters matters. Well, what does matter then? If nothing matters, then we could do it whenever we want. And so, uh, and, and I'm not saying, you know, that's not a hard and fast thing with me. We've had communion. I think in the 18 years we've been here, we've had communion once on a Sunday morning. So uh, it, there's a lot of other reasons we don't do it uh, on Sunday morning, but you get the idea. 
So if you're going to go in, go all in. We talk about the Sabbath this way too. People say, oh, you need to celebrate the Sabbath. You need to keep the Sabbath. Go all in. Find out how the Jews do it. Get, the, you know, get your special Jewish oven that turns on by itself so that you don't have to, seriously, so you don't have to kindle the flame. I mean, if you're going to do this stuff, do it. Don't just do the things that you want to do. And so if you're going to go to, a, at least if you're going to go to a Passover Seder, wear sandals and expect somebody to wash your feet. The Jews developed extra biblical sandal regulations. Of course they did. The right sandal always went on first, followed by the left. The left sandal was to be tied first, and the whole process reversed when taking the shoes off. And so the Jews, God bless them, they wanted to invest everyday activities with a sense of spirituality. And that's, that's okay, that's good, that's exciting. And so they said, hey, every day we put our sandals on, let's put the right sandal on first. And then put the left sandal on and tie them and then go into the reverse. And then every time we do our sandals, we'll be thinking about the Lord. But over time, it becomes a thing where you feel more spiritual because you do it that way. It's not that you're really thinking about the Lord. You're thinking about you and how righteous you are because you've never tied your sandals improperly. No matter how, you know, no matter what was going on, you've always got your sandal tying down. Don't get into that stuff. John the Baptist used sandals to illustrate the fixed mindset of a servant. Bet you thought I was never going to quit talking about sandals there for a minute. How many sandal things does this guy have? Verse 24, now those who, <laughs> you get it, right? Yeah. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. We know the Pharisees as the conservative sect among the Jews. They emphasize the keeping of outward rules, rites, and rituals in order to achieve an inward righteousness, or at least to be righteous before God. A person can, in their own strength and by their effort, reform, and that's great. If you're a drop, uh, fall down drunk, and you can go to meetings and reform, that's great for everybody, but only God can transform a person from within. Reformation does nothing to change the heart. Transformation changes the heart, thereby affecting everything we do. Uh, and so we, we change from within by the power of God. And then that affects our walk with the world, uh, out in the world. Verse 25, and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? The Jews practiced baptism, but not the way John was doing it. The Jews had, and they still have a practice called mikvah. A mikvah is a ritual bath that purifies the person entering it. A person will immerse him or herself in a mikvah upon conversion to Judaism after any time of impurity in their life and before religious holidays. John was doing the baptism and he was doing it on Jewish people, even calling the Jewish leaders to repent and be baptized. Jews were never baptized by other people and uh, they were never immersed, people were never immersed unless they were proselyting to Judaism, unless they were becoming Jews. And so to ask a Jew to become a Jew, in, in a sense, by uh, submitting to baptism was uh, offensive to the religious leaders. John told the delegation he was not one of the big three they were expecting. His denials confused them. And so John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, 
but there stands one among you whom you do not know. They're called teaser trailers. They're short video clips that let you know about an upcoming movie. They will drop way before the more lengthy trailers, sometimes years ahead of time, but uh, it, it's to kind of whet your appetite for the coming movie. John gave the delegation a teaser. He said, when he said, rather, I baptize with water, it indicated someone else was coming who would baptize in a medium other than water. And so he was letting them know, hey, this baptism in water is symbolic of something that's to come, something greater that's to come. And further, John told them that this someone was already in their midst. They weren't going to have to wait decades or centuries. He stood among them already. He would not reveal Jesus as the one nor explain his baptism until the next day. We'll get to that, Lord willing, in our next time together. Verse 27. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. In verse 15, John had said, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And so this declaration must have been a recurring teaching or theme in John's ministry, that uh, the person was coming who was before him. Uh, just one of those things. It's kind of like every week I say, ready or not, Jesus is coming. And so maybe John opened his baptisms with verse 27 so that there would be no mistaking what was going on. John, you remember, was Jesus' cousin. He was born before Jesus. Jews would naturally think John superior to Jesus based on birth order. Jews are highly, highly into birth order. Uh, they're like Italians in that way. Firstborn sons are sacred individuals. They can do no wrong. And then there's everybody else. And so, uh, you know, but firstborn, you read through the Bible, you see this, that the firstborn got the inheritance, got the blessing, those kinds of things. And so when they found out, well, they already knew that Jesus was John's cousin, of course, uh, but because they were all on Ancestry.com. But, uh, you know, they would think that John should be superior to Jesus, not vice versa. Listening more intently, John's claim is a declaration that his human cousin was before him in the sense that he pre-existed. The opening verses support this, having revealed Jesus as the word who was with God and who was God. And so the way that Jesus was before John, one of them was in the sense of the priority of his ministry, but the other was that he actually pre-existed before John as God. He says, his sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Sandaled feet in the first century got nasty, dirty. It was a, when we were in the third world countries, uh, Philippines, Honduras, all of these places, I would wash my tennis shoes at night. I mean, the, you know, your, your tennies are all full of just, you don't want to know what they're full of. I mean, you know, there's some of these places have open sewage running down uh, and you don't know what you're stepping on. And so we'd like, you know, I'd wipe them off. And if I could find bleach, I would, you know, do that. That's why I always wore white tennis shoes. But anyway, uh, imagine open-toed, weird, you know, sandals, walking around all day and on roads like that. Uh, it, it was terrible. And so it was a show of practical hospitality to remove a person's sandals and wash their feet. So when you came inside, some of you, you know, um, 
lot of you guys who do dairy work or out there, you know, you get your boots and you kick your boots off, your over boots, your rubber boots or whatever. I want to get a truck just so I can have boots that, that are between the cab and the, and the, I just think that's the coolest thing in the world, you know. Do you ever use them? No, but it's cool, you know. And then a, a big toolbox, you know, what's in the toolbox? Nothing, because I can't fix anything, but, you know, cupcakes, I don't know, whatever, but. Anyway, uh, so that's the idea, you know. So when you got inside, your feet were nasty, dirty. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will take advantage of foot washing as a teachable moment. On the night before his crucifixion, no one volunteered to wash the feet at the meal he was sharing with his disciples. It was especially bad because they ate their meal semi-reclining on low pillows, and so someone's filthy, stinking feet were always in your vicinity. And so, you know, here's the disciples all around the table, low, you know, not, not the Da Vinci table. That's weird. Do you ever really look at the Last Supper? That is the weirdest painting in the world. Who, who are those people? But uh, it was a low table, kind of reclined with your feet out somewhere. And, uh, you know, you look over and everybody's feet were just filthy dirty. Especially, there's always one pig pen type person, right? You know, that's, that's even dirtier than the rest. And so Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Making application, Jesus said, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Congregations practice foot washing. We don't see it as an ordinance to be practiced so much as an illustration. And so we're uh, no danger that we're going to want to wash your feet here. Uh, so don't worry about that. Although sometimes they spring it on you. I've been, anybody here, uh, before I say this and make a fool of myself, anybody here at your wedding have your wash, did the groom wash the bride's feet? Anybody do that? That was popular for a while. Weird, but popular. Uh, you know, and so it's like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm here to facilitate. I've got the whatever I do, I do, you know. And so they say, well, we'd like to have foot washing. Huh? All right. Am I involved? No. Okay. Well, do whatever you want. <laughs> You're not washing my feet, and I'm not washing anybody's feet. Is that clear? Yeah. And so, okay. You want to wash your uh, bride-to-be's feet? Now, some of you are thinking, man, that's the greatest thing in the world. That would be so wonderful. Yeah, just think about your gown, and think about the audience, and think about how awkward it is, and, you know... I don't know if you want to get into that or not. But anyway, to each his own. The disciples ought to have fought over who would have the privilege of washing feet, especially the Lord's feet. I mean, the way we think, right? Not that we do everything properly, but I mean, you're looking at this and think, wow, the opportunity to wash Jesus' feet. You know, my Lord and Master and, and, and wash everybody. You know, I'll get one up on everybody. Everybody's always trying to be greatest in the kingdom. This will do it. You know, this pushes me ahead. But nobody does. After three plus years with Jesus, they still had no idea what it meant to be servants. Do you know what else they did not have? They did not have the gift of God. The Holy Spirit poured out upon them. That wouldn't happen until after the crucifixion. Whenever his disciples seemed flummoxed, we need to put it into perspective. We, on the other hand, cannot claim ignorance. We have God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate what we can do to serve Jesus, his followers, and the unsaved. John the Baptist thought himself unworthy to remove the Lord's sandals to wash his feet. 
Too bad he didn't live long enough to hear about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I don't know if he could have wrapped his mind around that. Think about it for a minute. I mean, here's a guy that sincerely says, I'm only here as a voice to point to someone else who's coming tomorrow. And after that, I decrease so that he might increase. And then imagine, I mean, they beheaded him before, you know, the end of Jesus' ministry. But imagine somebody say, hey, John, you'll never guess what happened the other night. Jesus got down and loosed the straps of his disciples' feet and washed each person's feet. It was incredible. I don't know what John, it would have taken him a week of therapy to figure out what was that all about. No matter how long you've been saved, Jesus should constantly amaze you. Everything about Jesus is unexpected. There is a holy foolishness to the entire plan of salvation, of God becoming flesh. What other king condescends so much? And so if we're not constantly thinking of ways that Jesus was different than we are in the world and approach things differently, leadership, everything. I mean, everything about Jesus is different than what we would come up with. Not in a weird way, but in a spiritual way. And so if we, and that's why we wanna be more like Jesus led by the spirit than the world, led by methods and uh, programs. Verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Your Bible may have Bethany instead of Bethabara. I always wanna say Bethabara. Oh, I don't know what I wanna say. That's a tough one for me. Uh, It's the same place, two different names. Uh, It's kind of like Riverdale and Paradise. You know, they're (laughs) same place. That'll go down in record as the only nice thing I've ever said about River. I thought I wanted to counter everything, you know. It's a historical geographical detail that reminds us these events are true and they happened just as they were written. This isn't a story about a man we made up named John the Baptist. There really was a John the Baptist uh, and he really did these things. But it also lets us know the authorities had to come to John instead of him being summoned by them. We don't know if they ever summoned him, if he said no, like in Nehemiah style. One time Nehemiah responded to his enemy saying, I'm doing too much work here to come and meet with you guys. So I'm not saying that we know that for sure, but we do know that they came to John. And that at least indicates to those watching that his authority was greater than theirs. And that's something wonderful. And you know what? Our authority is greater as ambassadors for the Lord. Uh, We don't pull rank on people, but we don't need to fear people. People who are over us in some relationship, uh, you know, uh, we're to be submissive and all of that. But in terms of the gospel, we have authority. We have the thing that they need. We have the forgiveness of sins to preach and uh, the newness of life in Jesus Christ. We are not worthy to loose a sandal strap, but the Lord nevertheless uses us as his loosers. Believers pick up defilement from the world and could use a thorough washing by the word of God shared with them. And so when we come together as the church, it's an opportunity for us to just be cleansed by the washing of water by the word. Uh, Same thing in your devotions as you're reading the Bible, the, the Lord doing it, but 
Uh, you know, and so as believers, we're, you know, the, the world is a defiling place. You really can't watch very much or read very much or go to any, very many places without uh, coming up, up with some kind of defilement of, of uh, purity and, and those you know, standards of the Bible, and it's getting worse and worse. And so we need that washing of water by the word. If you're not a believer, you stand before God dressed in filthy rags. Jesus has taken upon himself the sin of the world. If you believe him, he will take away your filthy garments and exchange them for his white robe of righteousness. And you can stand before the Lord forgiven and saved. Let's pray.